Welcome into a podcast that I'm not exactly sure where it's going to live. I don't really know what to call it, but I know quite well the guest on it. He's, he's my father. He's sitting across from me, and we have here copies of his book, The Reality of BS, Big Sales, that is, a book that was written over a decade ago, published this summer or this fall, and is available now on Amazon and other fine places where books are sold. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this for a lot of reasons, mainly because I know how long this book has been in, in the works, and if we're talking about the book, that means it's it's here in reality. It's kind of nice to have something can touch, and uh, yep, most of the work was uh, probably about 16 years ago, actually, and um, then once I decided to complete the project, uh, that was uh, about four or five months of um, a little bit of rewrite, but uh, some of that was just to modernize and then to make the, the editors happy and comply with uh, some things that were seemed somewhat ridiculous to me, actually, of changing people's names and things like that. But unless they were dead, they pretty much needed to change. So, <laughs> so uh, you did that. And for knowing some of the real names, uh, there are some humorous name changes that probably everyone won't get, but I don't want to get you in trouble, so we don't have to reveal those. Um, so I, I asked. I asked some of the people still living if <laughs> I could kill them, and they said no. Just change my name. It, oh. it was strange. I figured they'd be happy to help. Oh well, not everybody can cooperate. You didn't sell them well enough, perhaps. I guess not. Lessons guess to learn not. for volume two. Pretty much. Pretty much. Before you kill someone, don't ask them if it's okay. Right. That is the lesson one and. More BS coming sometime in the next decade. Um, so what I want to do is talk about the uh, some of the ideas in the book, some of the content of the book, and then get into, outside of name changing, some of the processes and decisions in writing it. Because um, I think the interesting thing for me, as your son reading this, was it, it, and someone who's not directly in sales, um, I do sell training, I guess, and... Um, as we'll talk about, you're always selling yourself, but I took a lot of the lessons in here as life lessons more than I did necessarily sales lessons. And they were many of the same lessons that you tried to. And in, in many cases, maybe even most successfully taught me growing up. Um, but it leads to, a, I think, a, just an overall first question, which is how much does being a salesperson, a career salesperson, impact how you do everything and how you think about everything? I would say subconsciously quite a bit, um, directly not so much, uh, those times when it would have a direct impact on being a, a career salesperson or a business owner, uh, who is obviously interested in his company making sales. It's when decisions are going to involve time and or reputation where I might liken something back to career. But on a general day-to-day -day basis, um, everyone is involved in some degree of persuasion. Sales really is about human motivation. And the, uh, that, that starts when little kids are trying to let their 
get their parents to let them stay out later and play longer or have more dessert. Um, and for that matter, the reverse is true when parents are trying to bribe their kids to go to bed. Um, so we're, we're all involved in this uh, uh, human interaction on many levels. And that's, um, uh, that, that's probably one of those uh, uh, not-so-subtle things that I mentioned several times throughout the book as well, that um, sales is a people business. Yes, it's a numbers business, and, and all the other, depending on what you're selling and to whom you're selling, there's lots of other complications. But at the end of the day, it's people trying to... Um, understand someone else's needs and um, if they're if they're good they're trying to position their product so that someone understands it's meeting their needs yeah I'd step one in that is actually the first quote I had written down from the book which is the fact that we need to sell ourselves from the book more often than we think about it the thing we need to sell is ourselves if a prospect doesn't like us trust us feel comfortable with us and or believe we can help them why would they want to do business with us Wow, that sounds great. Someone <laughs> smart must have written that. <laughs> that was me? Yeah, okay. it was you. Wow. Or those editors did better than you thought. Wow. No, they... Uh... <laughs> Don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is that is true. And, and that goes to... Um, I was just talking with a, um, a new salesperson we hired recently... Um, and, and last week I was chatting with her about a kind of sales process that I believe to be true. And I believe it may be in the book as well about the uh, um, five steps to decision making, um, particularly in B2B sales. But the first step is if someone doesn't like you or trust you, chances are they're not going to want to do business with you. There's for many, for most products, there are options. And um, life's too short to have to spend time with someone that you just don't don't like or don't trust. And I think the other part of that that you talk about in the book, too, is every time if it's an item that you're buying, every time you use that item, you will go back. And in fact, there was the, the car buying decision, I think, was that story where you, yeah. you wound up buying a much nicer car than you had planned on, even though you had made up in your mind before ever entering a car dealer what exactly you wanted, because every time you got in the car, you just didn't want to think of the salesperson who sucked. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, uh, uh, a Volkswagen uh dealership that's here in town and there there's only one uh none, <laughs> nonetheless the name had to change um <laughs> however the um yeah i just didn't want to think about that car dealer every time i got in the car and uh similarly at uh you know in like a consumer purchase i think i i made the comparison to if a salesperson at a clothing store is an annoying jerk. You don't want to think of them every time you put it on. So there is an experience to uh, uh, to people that buy things, whether the things they're buying are tangible consumer products or business concepts and ideas. Next kind of topic. Um, I, I have a couple of quotes that get shorter and shorter as they go, but it's all along the same theme and they're spread throughout the book. 
uh, tell the user or the owner how their life will be more productive and efficient and you've got the potential for a sale. Nobody wants to buy software. They want to buy the benefits the software will deliver. Alternatively, as a marketing consultant, one of the things I repeatedly work on with the clients is getting them to realize nobody cares about what is being sold. Clients care about how what they buy will affect them or the shortest version of this, sell benefits, not features. Yeah, um, another way to shorten all of that is what I've done for years in uh, in meetings with real clients, and uh, not the fake ones, though. Not the fake clients. No, you not ignore the fake, this. You ignore this with the fake clients. clients. But um, uh, sometimes my staff, uh, particularly if someone's new to the company, they're aghast. But I'll just look someone in the eye and say, "Here's the deal." Um, no one gives a shit about your stuff. They only care what your stuff is going to do for them. Right. And um, that's why we have to focus on the benefits as opposed to the features, especially if the sales environment is one where everyone, and I guess I'm referring to my my uh, um, primary career now of being in the trade show industry, where a lot of trade shows... Everyone surrounding you is selling stuff similar to what you are offering. So what is it that's going to make you stand out? <coughs> can, I, can I cough on a podcast? You can. Is that okay? We All can right. edit it out or we can leave it in. Okay. It's a big editorial decision at 9.32 of the recording. Yeah, I think that was a piece of a uh, sandwich I just wolfed down here. Mm, thanks. Well, at least you're well fed for the podcast. Was there more to that thought or just we ending with the cough? No, we were just ending with the car. Oh, okay. Hopefully it's not the last thing I do. <laughs> that would be kind of cool if I dropped dead right now, huh, on a podcast. We've had a lot of death in the first 10 minutes of this podcast. You've threatened to kill others. You are threatening uh, to kill over and die yourself. Okay. Am I going to make it throughout this? Well, you know, <laughs> these uh, holiday weekends with extended family, they had a lot of pressure. I'm not extended. I'm your son. Yeah, well, I'm still talking to you. <laughs> You had a manager that you didn't particularly care for, you wrote about in the book, but had a, a thing that you liked that he said. Uh, he used to preach, not all business is good business. We all have accounts that zap our time, energy, and spirit, and we'd be better off without them. We can learn from everyone around us, good or bad. And this is kind of the the old saying, don't let sunk costs turn into opportunity lost. Um, how, how has an early recognition of that, because I believe that manager you worked under fairly early in your career, if I'm remembering correctly from this book that I read, uh, how did an early recognition of that concept help your career? It comes down to, um, deciding what's worth it sometimes. And it's very easy in sales to become completely enamored chasing a huge opportunity. But when you chase a few and don't land them, or you land them and realize that you may not be in a position to deliver uh, what it took to land them, and here I'm not really talking from personal experience, but uh, it really goes back to uh, something else that I, I often talk about, which is um, under-promise and over-deliver. And it's very easy to say what a buyer wants to hear, but you better back it up because that buyer is committing um, 
dollars to you and that buyer is entrusting you with the success of whatever it is they're purchasing. So depending on the size of that, um, that trust, which really means responsibility for delivering, um, that, that, that potential buyer is potentially putting their job at risk. They're putting their good judgment at risk. And what they ultimately say about you after the sale is putting your reputation as as a salesperson, a business person, or an individual for that matter, at risk. Yeah, I I think too. Well, there's many times where I saw you stressed from work as a child, um, but perhaps really, <laughs> yeah, I did notice that. <laughs> Thought you hit that better, um, but I, I think some of, especially as I got older, and we would talk about things and, and I got to learn about some of the stuff you were doing on a little bit more in depth level. Um, some of the most frustrated I would see you is when stuff got screwed up because you knew the, the, the trickle down effect it could have with a customer, a buyer that your reputation, like that's something that you really do care about. And for obvious reasons is laid out in the book and laid out by logic. Um, that, that is something that I think you, often bent over backwards and required your staff to bend over backwards to make sure that by the time whatever got screwed up got to the customer that it was right. Yeah, there's, uh, in again, in, in my business, um, in, in trade show marketing uh, or the sale of trade shows and exhibits or whatever we want to term it, the creation of... Um, uh, um, impressive environments um it's it's very much akin to um you people really shouldn't visit a sausage factory um you don't want to see it being made sometimes uh but the other thing in in my business and this is to this is true to varying degrees and and i would imagine all businesses your success and how you're perceived sometimes is not 100% up to you. For instance, uh, we are the primary point of, of contact or linkage or communication for many of our clients for anything and everything related to their participation in trade shows. But if a shipper screws up, or if the trade show organizer screws up, or if the venue screws up, or if the uh, general contractor at a show screws up, or if one of their subcontractors screws up, in their mind, it's a train, trade show train wreck, and that means that I or my company did something wrong. We might have done everything right, but now all of a sudden we've got this big black mark because something somewhere got messed up, even though it was out of our control. Yeah. Um, I just thought of a situation like that in my business, but I realized that talking about it on a podcast is probably not the smartest career move I can make. So uh, we'll just go to the next question, uh, which is one I don't necessarily need right now uh, because I just made the decision not to get myself fired. Why do you want an interviewee to dominate an interview. An now, interviewee. Yes. Now, now putting your manager hat on, your business owner hat on. The reason I think that's important, and, and I would say it's more important in a sales capacity or to some degree in a management or capacity, even if it's not sales, 
is because they have to be able to lead and control. Um, a salesperson selling something that is complex needs to be able to control a situation. Now, if they're selling the higher up the food chain someone sells, chances are they're going to be dealing with a either a traditional type A personality or someone who's used to being in control. And people like that don't like weakness. And so someone has to be able to come in and show that they can control a situation. So that's number one. Number two, hey, I sound like Joe Biden when I say that. Um, Just don't call any of it malarkey and I think you're safe. Okay. Um, the... The other thing that's important is a buyer is always judging a company they're going to do business with. And that judgment is formed by a combination of things, by the company's reputation, by the products and services that are available and what's known about them by competitors to the vendor in question that say things about your company, but mostly they're influenced or there's the opportunity to influence them based on what they hear from the salesperson. And one of the best ways to create a positive impression is asking intelligent questions. And some of that goes to the old cliche, you know, no one no one likes to be sold. Yeah. But they like to make that decision to buy. Right. So all of that goes into that same thinking about a uh an interviewee. They are selling themselves, but if the voice telling the buyer, the hiring authority, uh, that, gee, this person might be able to benefit my company in the following ways, if that voice is their own voice, they're going to love the sound of that. Whereas if it's coming from, quote unquote, the salesperson or the interviewee, it's not necessarily as credible. Therefore, if an interviewee can convey uh, information in a way that gets the uh, person on the other side of the desk affirming it, they're going to be much better off than just simply stating things. You write about, and I don't know whether you abide by this rule, but are a lot of sales managers, they will not hire a salesperson who does not straight up ask for the job because you, in a sales position, have to ask for the sale. Do you one, do you are you one of those people who will not hire someone if they don't ask? For yeah, a that's job? been a rule of mine and something that I've also made clear to um, the directors in my company. If it's a salesperson, they they have to in some way, shape, or form ask for the position. What about the other positions you hire for in in other industries? Like if if someone is a prospective employee listening to this that is not in sales, like if you had a designer, would you want them to ask for the job? Would you? Or is that what it wouldn't it wouldn't be nearly as crucial. I would want them to want to work for me, 
not just need a job. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot easier things to do in life than work in my company and in my industry. Um, so if someone's in it just for a job, chances are we're going to spend a lot of time trying to train someone and have them be a part of our company culture. And at some point, if they're, 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 they're just going to find an easier thing to do. Flip side of the coin, what makes a good manager? A good manager is someone who is a great communicator, a great organizer, and by organizer, I mean has an ability to prioritize, Mm. Um, to know what's important, to be open to change and ideas, to understand, I think, a good manager, and it's, it's, there are good managers in huge corporations, and there are good managers in companies that have fewer than a half dozen people. And some of the attributes are probably the same, but some are very different. And the differences come down to to what extent the company's uh, size and procedural demands allow for diversity of implementation as well as diversity of thought. And I'm, I'm not talking here diversity as it relates to ethnicity uh, or the other current uses of, of diversity. Right. Just a, a difference of ideas. Um, but I think the common things are the ability to prioritize, organize, and elicit the best of those that report to them uh, and they are responsible for. And I, I guess that, that last piece is worthwhile. A good manager also accepts responsibility um, and is not always pointing to those that report to him or her as the problems, but they realize if there are incessant, continuous problems, they might be part of that cause. I think the prioritizing, communicating, and where those two things meet is also an interesting facet of this. I think of my current boss um, at the radio station, who I think is fantastic at this. He will always make time to hear what I need, and sometimes he will tell me he doesn't have time for that upon hearing it. And I think that's actually an incredibly valuable skill because he won't just be like, I don't have time for that right now. He will tell me, I have thing X, Y, Z. Um, let's reconvene on Tuesday. And I think yes. the ability to communicate and then as an employee, it's on me to understand why my needs might not be the top of the food chain. Or if I do think that if I disagree and I do think that whatever I need is a higher priority, I clearly need to do a better job of selling it. Um. Well, I'd say in that respect, you're you're uh, you're lucky to have a manager that it sounds like it sounds like you've got a good manager. Yeah, I do. Luckily, uh, you separate in the book uh, motivations. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but to dive in, 
Uh, you separate motivations into fear and greed. Why and what impact does that have in the power to influence people? Um, they are universal. And there are so many subsets of either one um, that sometimes to quickly communicate um, and and when I talk about communicate here I'm thinking from a sales perspective strategize might be a better better term is understanding what is it that's going to make someone change and that is one of the the um, the cores of sales if you will uh, salesperson is asking someone to do something differently than what they've done before, whether that's buy a new six or seven figure software investment for a company, whether it is buying a new trade show display, or whether it is buying a new pair of shoes from a shoe salesperson at the mall. It's something that didn't previously, the, the relationship between the buyer and the thing being sold did not previously exist. So they must, the salesperson must understand what it is that's going to motivate someone to make a change. And uh, in the book, I know I, I talked about, I gave a couple of uh, examples of both in terms of uh, large corporate decision and small uh, con uh, personal consumer decisions. But ultimately, um, fear and greed has always summed it up for me. What was the original question? No, that was, I mean, that, that answers it. I, I think of the thing that I sell in the fitness world, and we definitely use fear and greed. Um, you know, fear of preventing injury or disease or whatever might a person might come in that might get them to invest in themselves training wise. There's also the greed clients. I just broke up with my ex-boyfriend and I'm going to see him in six months at a wedding and I'm going to look better than he does. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, there, there are times when they're not mutually exclusive as well. Yeah. You want to expand on that? Um, no, I just think that that's human nature to, uh, you know, in, in many situations, I can be um, afraid something might happen or might not happen. And on the flip side, I can pursue in hopes that something happens or in hopes I can avoid something happening, uh, both of which would point towards greed. So... Um, ROC, mm -hmm. big, it gets its own chapter in the book. Mm. It might be actually be one of the longer chapters of the book. Was it really? I think so. Wow. For three little letters. Yeah. What are, what's, what's ROC and why has that become a, a pillar principle for you? Any idea what we paid for your schooling and you can't define three simple letters? The I, letters from the English language. I'm, you... I'm staring over your right shoulder at my degree, which is under your degree, which is under your father's degree, all from a fine university in central New York. There we go. We all have degrees of, of the Qs. Anyhow, um, ROC is... Uh, I remember it if you want me to say it. No, I remember it as well. Okay, okay. Good. you wrote the book, so I hope so. <laughs> what is what is that? My, my I, I said it was really important in the book, but I, I just can't recall. My, my hope is that uh, recall. My my hope is that uh, the people on my sales team recall it, and usually I'll just use that when I'm I'm communicating 
more often in writing than anything else uh, to the people on the sales team, but it's a reminder to them that um, R is, well, RSC is responsibility, opportunity, and commitment. So to break that down, a salesperson, uh, someone takes a job. Right. Forget that they're a salesperson. They generally take a job with the understanding that they're going to perform certain work, they're going to get a paycheck, and the hope is that that paycheck is adequate or more than adequate to meet their personal and or familial financial needs. Um, whereas the R in responsibility as it relates to salespeople is they are saying, I'm going to do this job, and if I do it well, I'm going to make money that meets my needs, but I am accepting the responsibility to bring in the revenue that the company needs. And that means that all the people who are in a support role to sales are completely reliant on that salesperson for their salaries. And that is something that I like to discuss on the front end of interviewing a new salesperson because they have to understand it's not just about showing up, but it's, there's, not a, there's not really a choice not to do the job well. The company's relying on them. So the O is that um, in exchange for carrying this responsibility, in many companies, in many industries, salespeople have the opportunity to make an above average income. And a lot of times in sales, that is a, um, a variable income based on productivity. In other words, commissions. Right. And um, so the more you sell, the more you make. Now, if you want to make a whole lot and you want to meet or exceed the responsibility, it's going to take C. C is commitment. That means it's not just showing up and going through motions, but it's showing up with an attitude that, that ideally from day one doesn't say, I'm going to try to be successful here, but rather says, I will be successful here. That's, that's a very big difference, even though it's one little three-letter word, try. Um, it makes a difference. Yeah, no, for sure. There's an ambition, a commitment. Uh, obviously, commitment, I guess I'm now using using the word in the definition, if you will. But Rock on. Rock on. Uh, so when teaching us about nonverbal communications as kids, why didn't you just tell us the France story? Oh, the France <laughs> story. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that was, um, <laughs> you know, nonverbal communication when you're teaching your kids is something, um, actually your kids teach you about as well. It's, uh, it's, it's pouting. It's, um, things, things of that nature. But the France story happened to be true was just, uh, seemed to bring to light the importance of non-verbal and it involved uh, being being mugged in Paris on New Year's Eve and deciding I wasn't going to give up my, uh, my overcoat, which is, seemed to be what the, uh, the, the gang that mugged myself and one other guy wanted. So I just decided to uh, 
fight and hope if you hit a big guy, the others bail out and happen happen to work. It's uh, a little more detail in this available in the book. Yeah, it's well written in the book too. Um, but why not teach it to your kids because it shouldn't be um, <laughs> um, violence should not be the first thing you teach kids unless the uh, the assailants speak French and you speak English. Yes, c'est mon vêtement, c'est mon vêtement. It is my coat. It is my clothes. <laughs> These are my clothes. These are my clothes. <laughs> I think I weakened my attackers because they were laughing at me. <laughs> hey, whatever works. Little bit, little mix of verbal and nonverbal. Effective communicator. Yeah. But uh, as it relates to professional communication, um, I could never point to any single psychologist report that says a certain percentage is is more important than that. that mo- some percentage of communication is nonverbal and it's a huge number. And I know it's true, but I couldn't tell you if that number is 49% or 87% or 54%. It all depends. It's a concept. And most people have heard it in various ways, but whether it is through um, eye contact or the lack thereof, whether it is things we do absentmindedly with our hands or fingers, um, whether it is uh, not so much the words we use, but the tone that we use, um, all of these things can convey uh, patience or impatience, um, frustration or understanding, uh, empathy and compassion, or um, whatever the opposite of empathy and compassion would be, such as, I don't give a damn, I don't care. Um, and a lot of times, nonverbal speaks louder than verbal. Um, you decided in telling or in teaching these lessons in the book to go with a series of short stories. Uh, why, why was that how you wanted to write this? The book was originally written with a collection of a couple of hundred yellow sticky notes. (laughs) And I found when I lined them all up that to write it, as a complete narrative, I would have had to learn more adjectives and verbs. And we're taking a lot of sticky notes. So, yeah. So um, instead, I just took the sticky notes and uh, turned those into little vignettes. But on a, on a serious note, um, adults particularly learn best from hearing stories. Um People will remember stories. They won't necessarily remember things, statistics, uh, or detailed concepts until the essence of those concepts is tied to something memorable. So real stories about real people is a way that um, uh, I like to encourage some salespeople to sell. Sometimes those real people have fake names, but that's just because the editors are being a pain in the ass. That's true. Uh, some of the chapters seem to conclude without a conclusion. You just kind of let the lesson be self-evident. How did you decide which knots you wanted to fully tie and which you felt comfortable with leaving a little loose and letting the story stand out a little bit more? 
probably as I was coming to the conclusion of those chapters, your mother called and said it was dinner time. <laughs> no, I, uh, that probably wouldn't be the correct answer. Um, there were times, actually, in writing the book that I would read something, and I would re- reread what I wrote, and it would be clear and evident to me, but I would actually question that as, as a writer, is this going to make sense to somebody else? And um, so there were some changes and tweaks, um, and it actually came down to a very deliberate decision in, in pretty much all cases. Um, between the um, the the uh, editor that I had hired to uh, review before I submitted the final manuscript to the publishing company and the publishing company's two or three rounds of of uh, people, um, that was never really an issue that they brought up. Um, so it just seemed as though. Um, I guess I, I hoped I made the point I wanted to make, and um, if I ever failed to make a point, then someone just conclude they're too damn stupid to have a job in sales and move on. <laughs> just kidding, listeners. Just kidding. I have two more questions. Sure. Uh, how often in writing or rewriting the book did you read over something you wrote and go, shit, I need to be better at that? How many pages in the book are there? <laughs> Let's see. I finally have a hard copy in front of me. I was stuck looking at Kindle uh, Kindle numbers. I was like, uh, yeah, what page are you on? I'm on 73% through the book. Uh, there's 236 pages before the About the Author. I don't know if, if you learned anything that you need to do better in the About the Author section. Well, um, I will say 238 if you count that. Um... Every time I reread the book, and uh, there's, it's harder to rewrite than it is to write. But um, having had the benefit of a uh, 15-year layoff <laughs> in between the first draft and <laughs> and the final submission, I'd say 15 years ago I probably went through three drafts. Um, before I, I shelved the project because I had just bought the business, uh, when I decided to uh, bring it through to fruition recently, I probably reread the book four to six times um, over a couple of months, and it took a lot longer than it probably should have because I, I wanted to deliberately question everything. You've been in sales now for a while. Uh, you've now read, uh, written this book and rewritten this book. And as you went through that process and kind of thought of it, the entirety of your career, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that has evolved and changed from early in your career. But I actually want to ask you the flip side. What's the most substantial thing that has stayed true to your what you've done as your process has evolved over the years? One thing that comes to mind is, I think, something we started talking about when we started this podcast. 
Um, sales is still, always has been very much a people business. Um, that might sound counterintuitive to um, <clears throat> many, many younger people whose entire life is focused on uh, online communication and internet and everything they need can be had at Amazon. Well, although Amazon plays a role in B2B sales, um, it's not as large. Um, I still think there are, so I, th I think people and relationships are important. I think credibility remains important and um, credibility is something that necessarily gets questioned in today's world just because we're conditioned um, not to go off on a rant or tangent, but many people had high hopes in a, a president that was out to drain the swamp and said individual has, you know, documented over 13,500 falsehoods um, just in the last week. No, in, in his, <laughs> in, in the time he is president. Um, and so um, I believe credibility remains important. I think that value has always been important and value is different than price. Mm -hmm. um, people have different sensitivities to it based on their personal and their corporate perceptions of the economy. But no one ever wants to overpay. No one wants to pay what they feel is a fair price and wind up with a subpar product. Um, no one wants to feel as though they have um, bought something and because now it's in higher demand that the price is going to be completely jacked up on it. Uh, it's one story that uh, wasn't in the book, but I, I think about often was back in uh, my days with Group W Television when uh, shortly after joining them, uh, I was still sort of in training, but one of my first business trips was down to uh, West Palm Beach to meet with a a TV station there about renewing a project called For Kids Sake that we had launched. And um, I had been tasked with basically doubling the license fee they were supposed to pay, the, the price. And making matters worse, the uh, general manager of the station was a former priest who still had that, that air about him and could sit there and put his, his meaty hands on your shoulder and say, ah, son, you're probably a good man, but you're going to go to hell for that. And, <laughs> um, but the point is no one ever wants to be taken advantage of. So credibility, uh, relationships, and uh, having uh, a mutual respect for the people you're doing business with. Sounds... Uh familiar to a lot of podcasts I do. Normally I'm sitting next to Chris when we talk about that stuff, but uh, it's, it's funny how things come back in, in the same way. Um, I'm really proud of you for doing this. Well, I'm proud of you for everything you're doing in the many facets of your life. Thank you. And, but this isn't uh, about me. 
Well, I want to congratulate <laughs> you on your Emmy Award. <laughs> yeah. You'd be informing me of my Emmy Award if I had that, not congratulating me on it. Oh, did that not happen no, yet? No, not, not quite. I, see. I have to get into television before they do Emmy. There's more Tonys, but I don't have won one of those either. So I used to joke that Craig had a face for radio, but it stopped being funny because... He's actually good looking. Thankfully, he looks a lot more like his mom than me, but that's okay. You remember what I used to tell yeah. you? No, I never listened to you. Oh, what? okay. Oh, I would say, well, I got it from you, and you have a voice for print, and now I'm having you on a podcast, so that seems I to see. have backfired as well. Okay. Um, no, but in all seriousness, this is <laughs> – you told the story in the beginning of the book of how, in some ways, this book happened so we could get the dog who's rummaging around downstairs 16 years later. Amazingly. Yes, um, but – this was something that <laughs> there are many books rattling around in your brain. Some of them are superhero spy novels, but that's that's to be written. But this one I know is um, was something you really wanted to do, and it is an extension of things that you put a lot of time into in the presenting side of what you do and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm really proud of you. I love you. Thanks for doing this silly podcast, and I hope people enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Craig, and best of luck with chasing interesting. <laughs>